on the internet, it says you're developing direct air capture technology. And so on, on one side, I would like to dig into what that means. And then I would like to know why it is better than trees, kelp, and algae. Right. Okay. So I'm happy, happy to tackle those two things. So direct air capture is a family of technologies that captures air, well, carbon dioxide from the air, um, processes it in some way that you then end up with pure carbon dioxide. And, you know, the destination for this carbon dioxide is, is various. You know, there um, are a lot of ways that you can then remove that CO2 permanently from the atmosphere. Um, so notable examples of that is storing it in rocks. So there's lots mm -hmm. of rocks on the planet that will react with CO2 and form carbonates. It's probably my favorite way of storing it because it's the most secure and the most you know, durable. Um, and then there's actually a lot of sites around the world where there's abandoned gas fields or, or, or expired gas fields that once stored natural gas and now can store CO2. But, you know, people are less confident about, you know, whether that's a safe way of storing CO2 on the, you know, um, centuries timescale. Mm. Um, so that, that kind of covers removal. You know, there's some other examples, but um, those are the big ones. The other things that direct air capture is being used for is to provide CO2 in a commodity form, a feedstock for some process for making making products. And those products can be fuels, they can be materials, different types of chemicals, and even food. Um, so, and, and then there's lots of other things like fire extinguishers and, you know, fizzy drinks and all that. But, um, you know, from a climate perspective or a sustainability perspective, they're um, not as, you know, they don't gain quite as much attention. Yeah. So um, it's like, so, that's, so it's, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like a filter. So you guys are like building a giant filter, which then can suck out the CO2. And then you could use that material to do other things. So you go from being like a giant, uh ac unit sort of type of thing to yes. like a supply chain you then supply other uh people on the market so they can build that stuff yeah so you know direct air capture generally all, all, always has a few things in common you mm -hmm. know um there's some way of taking a moving stream of air and as you say filtering it that may be filtering it into a solid you know capturing it as a um within some solid material those are called solid sorbents. Um, and then there's a lot of liquids uh, that can capture CO2 as well. So in that case, instead of CO2 rushing through this solid filter, it's more like a kind of controlled waterfall where you have um, liquid being sprayed and drizzled across these high surface air materials that are very porous or have open channels and allows the air to blow past that uh, flowing stream of liquid. And that's that's the type of technology we're working on. Um, and then there's a variety of ways that you then get that CO2 back out. It could be with heat, it could be by changing the pressure, it could be using electricity in some way. Um, for us, we use an, uh, like an electrochemical technology. So it's co combining electricity and chemistry together. Um, and this is a type of technology that's um, spun out of the water purification industry, so it's, it's quite well known. Um, so there's many ways of doing it. 
Um, on the kind of like help side of things, or the, or, or you could also call it the um, nature-based solutions, uh, growing trees, growing kelp, these kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> well, you kind of have to tackle each one in, you know, um, case by case. So kelp, right? Um, there's a company called Running Tide. So they're they're growing loads of kelp out at sea, and then it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, once a certain amount of the kelp is grown in, it can remain there for some really long time scale, you know. But who knows, really? It's very, there's a lot of research going into it right now to say, well, how surely that when we sink a ton of kelp, that that ton of carbon and stuff doesn't come back out into the atmosphere? And so it's kind of a complex problem. So if someone was to pay for that, it's like an equivalent of a ton of carbon removal. How confident are we at the moment that that CO2 is actually permanently removed? And currently people aren't really that confident and they're doing a lot of research to find out. Um, and then in the kind of, you know, why don't you just grow more trees? Well, mm -hmm. trees are kind of slow. You know, we have a lot of CO2 to remove in a very short space of time. Um, and so trees are not a very fast way of getting there. And Trees can burn down. So there's been reforestation projects that have tragically burnt down in places like Spain. So, you know, that you've got to think about the insurance aspect of that. Um, and sometimes people end up just growing monocultures of forests, one type of tree that grows really fast. And then from an environmental perspective, that's not so good because then you have this limited biodiversity across a really large space. So you know that's not a that's not necessarily how it goes about, but that's what often happens within uh, reforestation programs at the moment. So there's a lot of improvement that can be had. Um, so that's a kind of like you know a simple description between the two. You know, uh, I think everything has its place. Um, yeah. So uh, from if I'm remembering right, seventy percent of like CO two scrubbing comes from the ocean. And then I think like 70% of the ocean scrubbing comes from like algae. Like they just like, you know, convert mm. it into oxygen. So then mm -hmm. if we just scale up, like, you know, really supercharge some algae or genetically modify some mm -hmm. to do that better, wouldn't that do the same thing? But without the, like, without mm. the commodity side of it, we just let them like filter it out and make <laughs> oxygen again. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting idea that you've thrown out. Um, I think there was um, a period of time in the planet where something like that kind of happened. I think it's called like the Azolia period or something like that, where there was some algae that like was really well evolved for that particular time and just grew massively and sucked up most of the carbon dioxide and caused a big cooling event. Um, and, you know, the world restabilized after that. I don't know how long ago that was, maybe 200 million years ago. I'm not really sure. Um, so yeah, you in principle you could do that. Um, there is the question of though of like all this carbon being sequestered in the ocean at that scale, all, all these organisms when they run out of nutrients and they die, they start to rot, and that can cause all this like anaerobic stuff going on. I'm not really an expert in this, but you know, in cases where you have like they call it like um, algal blooms where mm -hmm. fertilizer has run off from the 
from the farmland into the sea or into a lake. And then you get this huge bloom of algae. And when it dies and rots because you've run out of nutrients, then it can cause like other issues within the, um, you know, within the ecosystem. Like, have you seen yeah. that kind of, you know, yeah. that Simpsons episode where, you know, there's like one pest so they get an animal to eat that pest and then that pest uh, proliferates and they have to get another animal to eat that thing. And then you just, you know, it's like whack-a-mole, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the, yeah. the word of the day is eutrophication. I, I know, but then I double-checked it with Google. Uh, eutrophication is the runoff that causes algae blooms and other things to happen. And then uh, they eat all the oxygen and then kill the fish and other things that happen. So yeah, you, you, if anyone listening, eutrophication is the word of the day for what he's describing. Yes. Um, but yeah, the the idea that you use a predator, predator, predator all the way mm. around in a circle. Um, but I think you could just eat algae. I'm not discounting what oh, you're yeah, saying. That's, that's actually yeah. a good point. Yeah, no. Yeah. You, you scoop it up, turn it into... I mean, I mean, what what food would you like to turn algae into? Well, I think it's just... Uh, I was talking to Elliot Roth, and his episode is going to go up, in, I think, tomorrow. And uh, you can make pretty much anything with it as either um he, he's focused on making just pigments but you can you can make food mm. with it i don't see why not like use it as a scaffolding or whatever like the protein yeah like grind it into like a well i was thinking like more like salad yeah. like use it as like a base for like cell agriculture type stuff oh right yes i mean yeah, yeah biology would have a lot of use cases for that but i'm aware you know like um with with insects you know a lot of people don't want to eat an, an actual insect but turn it into a, a like a flower of some kind and then mm. you can put it into bread and you can put it into you know lots of things you don't really know that you're eating an insect um but then you are um yeah replacing or adding a very you know i don't know sustainable food feedstock into our diet yeah but yeah i mean in i'm from wales right there's a type of bread called i think um barra breathe and it's it's a seaweed based bread, um, so the Welsh would be probably quite pro this. Hmm, that's interesting. The only thing I know about <laughs> Wales is that's where King Arthur came from, allegedly. So you, yes. you descended from him. Although a lot of the Celtic nations do argue about where King Arthur comes from, but yes, um, I might be. Who knows? Yeah, I think I, his name's like Welsh Welsh. Like it's like if you look at like his full name isn't like Pendragon some crap. So like mm. it, it like. The the if you look at his full name, it looks more Welsh than anything else. I don't know. This is your this is your homeland. I don't know. This is my homeland, and I, and actually, I'm I'm currently thinking, oh, what is what is his full name? I don't know. So I'm, <laughs> I'm yeah. feeling a bit ashamed. King, so. King Arthur's more is like Anglican, like his Anglicanized name. It's not his actual name. It's like I think it's like Uther, and there's like a lot of umlauts and stuff in there. Someone's gonna write in and be like, "Lol, you're you're a heathen." It's Latin or something. But um, so the can. Can your yes. does, I'm gonna say I'm gonna guess no, but this is like a chemistry question. The mm. can the structure like the, the process that you're using be used for methane or what's the other one? Uh nitrous oxide. So the, the other uh, greenhouse gas gases, because you use the same process to mm. and then yeah. It seems like it's specifically engineered for CO2, but I, like could you tweak it a bit and use for methane and other things? Yeah, well, those two gases are quite different, methane and nitrous oxide. So nitrous oxide for sure was get captured by our system um carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide have a sim a similar property in that they can react with water and form acids and mm. an ionic species in solution and that's how our process works so 
that may be a good thing to some people, could be a bad thing in the long term. We haven't really been able to assess what would happen if you know nitrous oxide reacts with our system and and, and accumulates. We've done some calcs and we think, you know, we're not too worried about it, but you know, that's an ongoing matter. Um, but interestingly, on the NOx subject, we were we have um uh had a a, a an email coming from um I can't remember where, but someone who's responsible for an underground motorway mm-hmm. where NOx would in- inevitably be an issue. You know, I, I, I'm not quite sure of the nature of this call yet because it's this is a very recent development, but they're interested in uh, um, putting our technology or, or, you know, having that conversation in this underground motorway. And I imagine NOx is the thing that we're going to have to really think about whether, you know, whether we are... Um, capturing it whether that's affecting our system and whether that's affecting the purity of the co2 that we're making so so that's something that we could that could either be a, an opportunity or a challenge methane you know I, i'm always thinking about how can we get methane and co2 um captured in our system um unfortunately there's not that many materials or at least the, you know that are compatible with our system that could capture methane there's not really anything that's obvious and so the option the next option is how can you just turn the methane into co2 um because it's a you know in principle it's a combustible gas but is it such a low concentration you know i think it's about four parts per million or something like that so doing it in a way that you're not spending loads of energy is challenging but i would love to find a really selective way that you can target just that four in a million meth you know four molecules of methane in a million molecules of air you know a way of targeting that um that people are looking into it but i don't i don't think there's any credible large scale solutions that people have demonstrated yet is meth is methane heavier or lighter than oxygen um it's heavier than oxygen oh no, sorry actually it's lighter yeah it's lighter hmm well, I don't know if this works because I'm thinking of a liquid, but I don't know if, if you do this in gas, but like if you uh, if you do like the, the centrifuge thing for like blood, mm. like the heavier platelets will go to the bottom. So then you could use that and then, uh, you know, separate it yeah. for some other process. Some kind of massive cyclone. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, that makes me think about how people make heavy water, you know, yeah. water, you know, you got you got hydrogen, deuterium, tritium. People basically, you know, purify that by some kind of crazy centrifugation process so yeah yeah in principle yeah 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 well and then you could just go to like uh like some cow ranches where there's just a lot more methane than normal you know get straight from the tap essentially (laughs) and then it'll be a little easier instead of like four parts per million it'll be like 10 parts per million or something that's a little easier like um yeah yeah like the cows are like the equivalent of chimneys (laughs) in in in, um in, in the co2 industry I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, uh, this kind of goes, no, you're going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say there is what there is, you know, you know, more direct ways of, of, of dealing with it, the source. And I think there's been some interesting research whereby giving cows a certain, um, uh, certain extracts in their food, they can, that disrupts the bacteria that make methane. So, 
There's some nifty, I think that's coming more from the biochemical space. There's like garlic extracts and seaweed, you know, seaweeds cropping up again, seaweed extracts um, that actually prevent it from being formed in the gut in the first place, which is quite interesting. I don't know if you got these commercials when you were a kid, but they would feed chocolate milk to a cow and then shake it and then you could have chocolate milk come from it. And it kind of feels like that. So I don't believe it, <laughs> even though like chemically, I'm sure it makes sense. But I just feel like it's the equivalent of like feeding it chocolate milk and shaking the cow and expecting chocolate milk to come out. I, I don't know. It's, it probably makes sense. But I'm, I'm like, uh, that's what I'm picturing. You just like feed it like a chocolate milk type thing. Have you ever saw those commercials? They're all alive for everyone else listening. Do not feed a cow chocolate milk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you're just making me think about whether anyone's going to be mad enough to try and genetically modify a cow to make chocolate milk. Um, I've thought about it. You you can kind of do it. You, 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 you can. I mean, if you can get goats to make spider silk, I don't see why you can't make chocolate milk. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Hopefully someone listening gets the idea to, uh, well, takes on that idea in their own research. Yeah, I think the the only problem is that people who are smart in that type of stuff, they usually want to do something entirely synthetic, like eggs without chickens or something. Like they don't they don't want to like make the chickens, you know, mm. have chocolate <laughs> eggs or whatever. I don't know if the comparison there would be. They they tend to just want to really go towards like the extremes of it. Like what if we could do, like chocolate milk without any cow, like like dairy free milk and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, I feel like that's like you'd have to have someone who's kind of like. Uh, I don't know, like who who's in the the dairy industry and wants to preserve the cow way of life or something like in terms of like a uh, agriculture, because right? I yeah. think they would just do it completely synthetically. I don't think they would actually make the cow do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it a lot of work. An anti an anti vegan lobbyist <laughs> to fund it. Yeah, yeah. Then um, for so when when you were describing the DAC technology a minute ago, it kind of yeah. gave me the impression of. And not in a bad way, but it kind of reminded me of like nuclear power plants where you hear nuclear power plants, you think, oh, it's, this is going to be complex. It's going to be really cool. No, it's steam turning a turbine. Like that's how boring it's like a nuclear plant is. That's all it is. It's like uh, it's steam that's generated by the nuclear fission and it turns yeah. a turbine. And that is where electricity comes from. I always felt it should be more cool than that, but it's not. And But at the same time, your technology seems quite simple. You uh, get the the co2 some way either like it filters in or whatever like that extraction mm. method is and then you spray it at water and then it bonds with the water and then you either keep it as a solid or you make it as a liquid container and go use it for something else but that's that's a kind of a, like like a really kind of simplistic way but also kind of like it's kind of just dis- like disappointing in how simple it is is what i'm saying like so well, well, i can plant. tell you i can tell you a little bit more depth and you know um interesting things about it so okay so that first process Oh, you just mix CO2 and the air together. Well, it's not just water that you need. You need to have um, a chemical in there that can accelerate the reaction because CO2 dissolving into water, well, once water doesn't um, want to contain too much CO2, so you have to make it alkaline and then it, and then you can store a lot more CO2 in there. But two, that reaction is still a bit slow. And so you need to find the right chemical that can accelerate that. Um, and yeah, there's a, there's a range of things that already exist in industry. One thing that's a bit of a hot topic in the um, in the carbon capture space at the moment is an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase. So this is an enzyme that's in all of our bodies. It it's responsible for taking CO2 from the blood where where it's being produced by our cells um, and turning it into ions you know, little charged molecules. And then that 
those charged molecules end up ending or end up in our lungs, where that same enzyme does the reverse reaction and turns those charged molecules back into CO2 and then we respire it. Um, so people are doing evolutionary design of these enzymes. They're like trying to find enzymes in cold places or really hot places that, you know, that may have some interesting properties. So they're super stable or they're super active because they have, you know, maybe in, in a cold place that enzymes had to develop extra, extra speed in order to keep up with the challenges of respiration. So that's, you know, we're interested in that. Um, and I'm sure bunch of other DAC companies are in, interested in that in some way but it's not suitable for all all, all, all the technologies so so yeah there, there's some innovation required there to get the CO2 fast enough into your solution that's the capture stage that's getting into the liquid the release stage is um kind of simple but also quite technical so there's these we, we use these stacks they're called they're called electrodialysis stacks and they consist of essentially two, 300, 400 parallel channels um, separated by membranes. And these channels allow two different fluids to flow past each other without mixing. And the membranes are selective for particular ions. Um, in our case, we have a membrane that's selective towards negatively charged ions. And then we have another membrane it can split water into acid and alkali. And essentially, we use this piece of technology. It's existed for quite some time, but, you know, there's still a lot of optimization to be done to grab the CO2 uh, that we've stored in solution in the form of carbonate and bicarbonate ions, move it into a new solution, a totally different solution that's now tuned to be acidic and to be an environment where those ions are really unstable and just reverse the reaction back to CO2. And all of this requires a voltage to be applied from one end to the other that moves the ions in the right directions and, and helps split the water into acid and, and alkali. And so, yeah, again, Visually, it's quite simple. I could show you how the stacks work and you'd get a feel for it. But then part of the challenge is integrating these two processes together, making sure all the chemistry is compatible um, and that it's all running efficiently. You know, that that takes quite a bit of time. And that's that's what we've been up to, you know, for the most part for the last two years. Yeah, it sounds much more complicated now that we got into the details. The Are the... <laughs> The for, so the special sauce of what you're developing versus normal off the shelf type technology is the are is the membrane unique at all or are you just using something that exists? I don't know anything about chemistry. Chemistry makes no Again, sense to me. Yeah, is well, it, our whole strategy as a business is to minimize, at least for our first product, minimize the amount of um, bespoke components that we have to manufacture and figure that out ourselves. You know, we always outsource and or or buy in what is available to the greatest degree that we can, unless there is some great opportunity in figuring it or in in making something ourselves and um, doing that. So yeah, we 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 have that tilt because we want to get products to market as soon as possible and and iterate off them. Um, because this is a big problem. We're running, you know, fossil fuels will run out someday and we have a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere to clean up from a 
party of 200 years plus that we've been doing and um so in some ways um we can't spend you know 10 20 years doing something really hard to figure out you know we need to use very available technologies and equipment um but so the special source you know you kind of raised before is it's just all that know-how of how you get the system to work well and the specific uh, concentrations, compositions of these liquid streams that that make it work in an optimal sense. You can't have all. You have lots of trade offs everywhere. If you adjust one thing, something else gets worse. You know, and then and you try and make that thing better, and then something else gets worse. So there's so many trade offs, so many variables. We end up using modeling to actually kind of figure that out because otherwise the experimental number is too high. Um, but yeah, that's. Yeah, that's a kind of um, that's that that's the way you should be thinking about it. Is there an optimal size for this? Where too too much bigger and it starts like you have to do a lot more work to find all the balances, but too small you don't get the desired result of pulling the, uh, the, as much CO two out of the air as you want. Well, yeah, in terms of like appropriate sizing, um, some of it comes from actually what are the limitations of what you can buy. So when it comes to fans and the system, you know, the the thing that um, uh, that the module or, or the the container that essentially you're using to capture the CO two in, you want to use the most efficient fans and the largest fans because they're going to work out to be cheapest because of um, economies of scale and the fan design that you can use. Um, but that is when you want a really big plant. That's when you're going to the, a plant that's capturing hundreds or millions of tons of CO2 from the uh, from the air per year. Currently, we're kind of going for a shipping container design, and that naturally places some limitations on the size. Um, but the shipping container design that we have, from a scaling, like, efficiency perspective, the work, you know, um from an energy consumption perspective and stuff like that we're kind of we're at that point where um you know how it scales it scales in a very linear way the performance um for the electrochemistry there is at the moment a kind of optimum size um these stacks um have to have all the fluids moving in just the right way you know you don't want any dead zones you want all the fluid moving the same speed and so then it becomes like a fluid dynamics question that gets more and more challenging the bigger the stack gets. So generally, you don't find things bigger than um, like a meter by meter wide. You know, that would be really big. Um, and so they, they kind of look at, you know, they look like things the size of like a really big family fridge. That's like, that's kind of like the size of those modules. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. So then uh, how do you plan to manufacture them? Is it going to be an in-house thing or are you going to just like find a Southeast Asia or a place in Mexico that'll build them for you at scale? Yeah, no, it's um, at, at scale. Um, we may get into manufacturing them ourselves. Um, we anticipate that there will be, you know, bes- you know, kind of customizations that we want to do that other companies may not be offering. Um, at the moment, though, for our pilot plants that we're currently procuring the equipment for and and getting ready to to deliver, um, we're we're working with other companies that are building them. You know, as a startup, it just it's just a much more convenient way to go about it. Um, 
But in the future, when, you know, we envision a kind of gigafactory-like production of things such as our, our stacks, um, you know, making them in the same way that cars are assembled, although they're much simpler, a lot, <laughs> lot fewer, fewer pieces than cars. Um, but that is the scale of the problem, is that when we reach that mature stage, in order to keep up with the targets um, of CO2 removal required to, you know, mitigate a, a really bad warming scenario, we'll need, yeah, you know, effectively gigafactory pumping out these units and building plants all over the world. How many do you, so how many of uh, container-sized boxes do you need to actually make a dent in the CO2? Oh, right. If, if we're thinking about shipping containers... <laughs> Yeah, that's roughly um, the size as, of, as, as of, of, of one unit, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, How many shipping containers of your thing do you need? Oof, I've never, I've never done this calculation before. Um, we usually, because because when you go to the mega scale, you you know you abandon the shipping container idea because it, oh, okay, it it doesn't really make sense to have you know um, ten thousand shipping containers or something like that um 10 yeah so to to get to a million tons of a million tons of capture per year which is about a hundred thousand people's worth of co2 um you would need something on the order of you know ten thousand to fifty thousand shipping containers is a million the goal uh, a, mi a million is kind of the size plant that people are talking about. It's the biggest size plant that anyone's talking about. Um, and that's coming from um, a, a, a joint venture between Carbon Engineering, one of the first DAC companies, and um, I think Oxy, Oxy Ventures and Oxy or something like that. Uh, 1.5 is, is one of the project developers. Um, and so they're building or, you know, designing and building these plants in the Permian Basin. But unfortunately, they have a a, um, a a part of their use case will be for enhanced oil recovery. So that's mm -hmm. injecting CO2 into the into the well so you can pump out more oil. Um, and so that's obviously a hot and controversial topic in direct air capture. So people say, hey, that's just making the oil less um emitting or you know or you know has less of an impact and other people feel like that is just giving a license to these oil companies to continue operations far longer than we need to have them around because you know obviously we need oil right but how long is this transition going to take and if we um if we give a, a moral license to enhanced oil recovery, does, is that just going to drag out um, this transition and slow slow the, the rate of uh, change within our industries? So, yeah, like as, a, as someone kind of stepping into this conversation, you know, what's your first thoughts or feelings about, you know, the concept of enhanced oil recovery? Uh. I'm completely indifferent to it as long as it gets the job done. As long as it does what it needs to do, you know, and it doesn't cause more pollutions or runoff and it's it's more safe and, it, and whatnot, then I don't mind. 
I guess it, that my only concerns would be, is it safe? Does it yeah. work as intended? Is it going to, I don't know, cause oil spills or something like build up more pressure that the pipes aren't norm, uh, used to, to, to mm. dealing with. Um, yeah, I mean, morally, I'm indifferent. <laughs> it's just like it's you know, if it works, I'd rather not have people die from climate change. Uh, I that's more important to me than not using yeah. oil. Like I don't care if we have to use oil to get there. Yeah, of course. I mean, we have to spend oil in order to get there, right? Because you know, we need the energy, we need the yeah. economies to work, we need the, you know, we need to uh, continue being. Uh, a sophisticated industrialized countries that can do the r d to you know to manage the, the transition um enhanced oil recovery you know in principle reduces the um uh co2 intensity um but it's a crystal ball kind of you know cal- you know speculation if it delays the transition or not mm-hmm. um but you know i guess you know a lot of people are like, well, we shouldn't really trust oil companies given their level of um, um, uh, you know, given that they've perhaps had led misinformation campaign about climate change and, you know, not not always true to their words. And you know, they're not known anyway for, you know, being a, uh, an industry of sort of ethical, um, ethical not sure what the word I'm looking for, ethical practice or something. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think businesses are as ethical as we allow them to be. So mm. the, if the oil companies are doing bad things, it's because we don't put in the regulation and uh, at, make the cost of doing them worse than just doing the right thing. Like there are, there's this great TV show called Mr. I think it's Mr. Robot. I know robots in the name. And uh, there's like this oil spill causes cancer for a bunch of people. And this woman spends like a whole season trying to get a settlement. And eventually she finds the right leverage to get her the settlement she wants. And the guy's like, you know, when we first did this, the money we saved by cutting this corner, we put into a fund. And that fund is made 10 times what you're asking for. So you can have your victory here. We've already made more money from it. So it's like that. That is yeah. how I feel most things are set up. You know, for instance, one is uh, like parking tickets, right? The, an argument can be made that parking tickets are just the cost of rich people to park there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Though, I mean, some people treat it like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, are, are yeah. the regulations and penalties sufficient that people will not do those things? They're not. So they're going to keep doing them and polluting the environment and blowing, blowing stuff up. Mm. Um, so, like, I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't blame the oil company for acting in the most evil way possible. That's just evolution of biology. I think it's our fault for tolerating it and not yeah. putting in laws and stuff to to do against it but i do hear your point that given how things are currently set up they yeah you probably wouldn't want to trust them but then it's uh how we set things up so that we can trust them i don't think so the um what if i think about like what where's the best use of your technology I, I i was thinking um you know you could go to where all the coal plants are where where all like the mega producers are and then just like slam your thing right in there and that could just be like be a cost associated that the government mm. mandates, for instance, or just like there's an incentive there for them to do it, and then that stops the pollution. There's a there's a really great uh, documentary called Empowered. The lady who made it was on the show, and she went to a coal town, and the coal town was just like they loved their coal plant, even though they had coal everywhere, uh, and it was like messing the air and stuff because they had the best teachers. They had all these things like coal coal plants have a very positive impact on their uh, in their environment. Weirdly enough, when it comes to the people, but also they have their costs and effects. But uh, so like if you could take that coal mm-hmm. plant 
which then has those those downsides. Bring in a couple of shipping containers of your technology, uh, some some DACs or some deck boxes or whatever you want to call them, and uh, and then like offset that. That'd be kind of nice. And uh, during the interregnum of like moving the transition over, if that's the idea. But regardless of whether or not we completely leave coal or not, uh, it'll scrub it out, make it clean, essentially, like get rid of the CO two, and you can make money. Mm. Capitalism. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Come um, th that is um, so that's a family of technologies called point source capture hmm. so uh, that, that's a much more mature industry than direct air capture um, direct air capture only turned up in the world about 14 years ago or so point source has been around for a few more decades than that um, and um, yeah like has had its ups and downs and it's kind of back on and up um part of the challenge is then what do you do with the co2 um is that power plant in a place where there is that storage available or is there a pipeline that can then you know pipe your co2 to a place that is useful because as soon as you start trucking around co2 you're kind of just defeating your purpose so yeah there are a bunch of plants where this kind of co-location co requirement is set up um so, and in those cases, why not? You know, you're just cleaning up your waste. You know, it's like, it kind of just makes sense. Um, and the cost of it has fallen quite a lot. Um, yeah. It doesn't no, sound that's, like that's your use case though. That's not no, our that's use not, case. That's not, yeah. well, we're that's not like our, um, that's not our motivation at the moment um, because ultimately DAC is needed regardless. Yeah. You know, point source should happen. There's lots of people, great people doing that. Um, we started Mission Zero. We thought, okay, DAC is just beginning. There was a few companies to talk about when we started. Um, and we felt we had something something to offer that no one else was talking about. Um, but now, three years since we started, we've gone from, um, you know, okay, so there's three companies in 2009-ish, you know, maybe a couple more. Um 12-ish companies around three years ago when we started. And now there's probably 250 companies on our, you know, company database of people claiming to do DAC. Yeah, um, um, yeah actually, it, was, it doesn't sound like it's very relevant to what you're saying, but um, I, I guess the point is, is like DAC is serving a different need. Because mm -hmm. even once you even once you've captured all the carbon from all the coal plants and gas plants, there's still a couple hundred gigatons of CO2 kicking around that still shouldn't be there. You know, there's still a landfill somewhere that that we haven't uh, thought about. Um, and that's that's DAX opportunity. Hmm. So, yeah, then where where the where's the most if you could if you blanket regulation to just allow you to go wherever you want you don't have to work with the governments will just let you in put you wherever you want do whatever you yeah. say where's the optimal places that you where's the optimal use cases for your technology then like where should they be what should they be yeah. doing what what the the optimal thing that we like is temperate climates <laughs> um that that don't get too cold and don't get too hot um and and that particular area has um an abundance of renewable electricity. Um, so there's actually a lot of places around the planet right now that has huge amounts of renewable electricity uh, curtailed every year because the grid isn't 
adapted to variable energy supplies or or there's just too much so taking a couple examples scotland has so much wind power it often doesn't know what to do with it and i think something like on the order of a billion pounds of wind power is wasted each year in the uk because we can't transport it very well from the north of the UK and Scotland down to the south where there's much more energy consumption. So unfortunately, that's not a good situation. Um, and then another case that we find quite interesting. So we're, we're in talks with a company in Canada that has access to a lot of hydroelectric power. And in this case, it's a very consistent source of energy, unlike wind. And the reason it has abundance is because they just built these huge reservoirs, you know, decades ago. And they just get so much water, they just they just don't know what to do with the energy. So you have really cheap, really clean energy coming from these hydroelectric dams in in, in Canada. So for us, yeah, it's or actually the other thing that's worth pointing out, we don't work very well in a place where there's water scarcity. We do need water, and at scale we need a lot of water. Not so much that it hurts our economics, but so much that if you're in a place where people are like, hey, we don't have enough water for ourselves, then we're not going to be helping that situation by by moving in there. Um, so we have to be sensitive to that as well. Um, and, and so that's the particular use case for us. And interestingly, many other DAC technologies have different types of optimal situations. You know, um, Climeworks, uh, they use a lot of heat. And so their favorite place is somewhere with loads of geothermal energy. So they've set up in Iceland. Um, other DAC companies have, have said, well, maybe we can use the ocean as our source of CO2. So, you know, they've got to co-locate with the ocean. And so there's um, there's um, a range of other companies that have different, you know, niches, just like in an you know ecological system. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that explains why you're building a pilot plant in Oman, then. It's got kind of all of that, as long as you have desalination with the, the Gulf. Not the Gulf. Yeah, I mean... There's a Gulf over there. It's a different Gulf, though. It's a different... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a lot of desalination in, in Oman. So even though it seems like a water-scarce place, um, uh, de desalination is not that expensive, you know? So um, it, it doesn't doesn't kill the economics of our process. Yeah. Why didn't uh, why didn't you pick Israel then? They have like the best desalination in the Middle East. And it's pretty warm there, I think. They have deserts why nearby. Not? Yeah. Um Yeah, yeah. Why why uh, Oman <laughs> over other places in the area? Well, uh the Oman project, you know, um that came about via X Prize and uh, okay. uh and you know, our networks and it was a very organic thing that cropped up. Um so yeah, sometimes you just pick the opportunities that you know come come to you as a startup, right? Um, we don't necessarily have the luxury of like looking at at the geographic map and be like, there. We just mm -hmm. have to work with our partners that 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 we uh, we know at the time. Yeah, I was uh, recently talking to a friend of mine who's in the Middle East a lot, and he said that if you're building a company and you live in the like you're a Western person building technology and you're moving it to the Middle East, that the Middle East is extremely supportive. Uh, of helping you get your company, your technology built up out there, like to the point where like they'll subsidize workers and material uh, procurement stuff. But that's, it depends on the country. I don't know is uh, how friendly is Oman yeah. to the process. I guess they've been. I think they're quite pro. Um, 
I think they're quite pro carbon capture. Um, you know, their desert has loads of peridotite, a mineral that reacts with CO2. And they've, um, so Talal, who's from 4401, he's, he's the CEO of the company that is developing an injection technology that inject, again, in, is injecting fizzy water into the ground where all this peridotite is. And the Mali government has been incredibly, um, uh, supportive in 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 his project, um, basically giving him the right to uh, to pilot this in in quite a large amount of space. So that therefore very forward thinking, and yeah, that we've had lots of reach outs from different um, uh, Middle Eastern uh, companies that want to demonstrate DAC in different environments. So they're quite forward thinking. I mean, they've got all this renewable energy. They know that oil's not going to be around forever. Um, they want to be part of the solution. And so, yeah, they're quite open to that. And I think, you know, I think the business cultures are quite compatible um, as well. So, you know, um, it, it's going to be a really, it's going to be, it's going to be an area where we'll probably see a lot of future DAC deployments. Hmm. So then if you're, if the goal is to get a million tons out of the, like just scrub a million, I think it's a million tons, right? A million pounds. A million tons for like, that's like, that's like a big plant, like one big plant. That, well, I thought it was well, like all the plants together. I thought it was like cumulatively the goal was to build as many plants oh, uh, horizontally. No, I'm asking you, like, like this is a clarification question. Is yeah, your yeah. goal to build enough plants horizontally to get a million pounds per um, year? Yeah, or, yeah, go ahead. I think we're going to be disconnected on that. Oh, yeah, no, no, sli slightly, um, slightly off on that. Just that um, a million tons is the size of is the target size of a large scale DAC plant. Yeah. It's used as a number because when we do our modeling of how the cost of capture changes with scale, you know, by a million tons, you've really got your economy scale quite large. You've got your you know equipment cost down and that's when you can get to really, you know, the, the costs of capture that, that most people have agreed on will, will, be accessible to a really large part of industry to, to fund. You know, lots of companies are paying DAC companies a certain amount of money per ton. You know, currently they're paying 500 to, you know, thousands of pounds or dollars per ton of CO2 captured because they want to support these new technologies. But everyone, you know, feels like the goal must be to get the cost of capture to, you know, $200 per ton, $100 per ton, or even less. And the only way that people's models really get there is when you say, well, let's make a million ton plant, um, a million tons per year plant. Um, so, you know, that's the future for a lot of DAC companies for, you know, then it becomes a little bit centralized. Um, and then, you know, the number that we're talking about that we all want to actually capture is then in, you know, as a collection of companies, as an industry is in the, you know, tens to hundreds of gigatons of CO2 removed. Um, yeah. What, what, yeah. I think I people think... people talk about 200 gigatons of CO2 should be removed. Hmm. Yeah, there's, there's no perfect number there, right? Yeah. So uh, what, I'm what I'm trying to get is like the threshold for success as you delineate it. So 
when like you could you know if your company just kept going eventually just keep scaling can scaling to get as much as you want right um but you also have those like mvp the first stages of success where you can sit back and say wow i've done something good here with the carbon capture we're doing we're, we're out of the pilot plant we're doing x per year mm. like oh, I'm, yeah. I'm i'm potentially doing you know like where you feel good about it like what is that threshold ah uh, yeah okay well yeah so our, our first plants right that we're talking about hundreds to a thousand tons per year of you know the first generation one of our plants so they're you know maybe a ton a day you know something in that range not huge um i'm going to feel quite happy when this plant you know pilot plant you know up and online you know that's going to be a massive you know personal and collective achievement of our company you know it's no joke you know building a pilot plant um for the first time but uh the kind of um size or scale where we um things are getting really interesting is in the 10,000 to 100,000 you know ton per year um range you know there's a lot of a lot of use cases for co2 in the 10,000 ton range so companies that may might want to make fuels from our carbon dioxide or companies that want to make building materials from our carbon dioxide there's a lot of customers that actually just want co2 at that amount so that's kind of what we should be thinking about when we hear the 10 10,000 ton range and, and we'll be really happy when we're selling co2 at that scale to a customer you know we've got a good business proposition there um and then when we're talking about removal and just permanently getting it out of the atmosphere you know the big plants that will you know wow everyone are the you know hundred thousand tons and above so no one's built um you know plants on that scale yet and we're all trying to get there over the next you know or before 2030 um yeah. and that will you know the first plant above that will will be you know big news really big mm. news um yeah. maybe just like one point of comparison is climbworks have, have a 4000 ton a year plant operating that i think um turned up something like last year last summer and that was a big story 4000 tons per year you know one of the first companies to get there and their ambition is 40,000 in maybe maybe in another year's time something like that a 10x of that um I guess you know I guess it's like leaping up one order of magnitude at a time you know and the mm. first to get there is the is the big milestone yeah that makes sense so then for for the sake of the conversation every question I'm going to ask there thereafter is going to be about the ten thousand to a hundred thousand dollar range a hundred pound yeah. hundred ton range because that's like where I, I think you lit up a little bit in terms of the like no one's done it you'll have partners like there'll be utility and what you can capture and uh yeah. have usable elsewhere then uh so one clarification question do you need one omni plant to reach that level or can you build a bunch of small pilot plants in an area to reach the same level and is, yeah, there, is there is there an optimal is there an optimal is it optimally to build one giant i guess versus a bunch of small ones yeah i i will segment that into utilization and removal they're like mm. different games and you know for utilization if someone wants commodity grade co2 then you can only supply as much co2 as they use and so you know a, a lot of these are the smaller end um of that scale and removal will be a much larger end so like removal for, for us is like the plant will need to be as big as as 
people are willing to finance and as big as the storage constraint of the you know storage section is so you know there may be you you know the plant gets limited by how much you can the rate that you can store um and we don't really know what that upper limit is in all locations but sometimes you know like the classic um or the the like the the current you know storage mechanism that is being used by Climeworks or 4401 is injecting fizzy water under the ground and it carbonates and each one of those wells can only handle a few thousand tons so they're going to have to have loads of wells decentralized over you know a large amount of land and then you may have multiple small smaller facilities co-locating with those wells it's not really a you know one simple answer it's very much always like it depends yeah. um where where scalability like does increase a lot is when you have a pipeline and that pipeline goes to a gas field or some kind of like haven you know um something that you can just inject at a really fast rate so then you can you know imagine you know just bigger is better um as big as that pipeline can handle um yeah that's that's so yeah, it does really vary between the decentralized, mm. lots of companies, lots of different plants, um, and you're just tuning your product to what that customer needs to um, a very centralized model, potentially, um, where, you know, you just need to get the cost down as low as possible when you just want to pump CO2 down a pipeline. Yeah. the For the people who are going to pump the CO2 into the ground to make fizzy water or whatever are they in, in america it sounds very similar to like fracking what we have to do to get the oil out of the shale or whatever okay. and that has resulted in i believe earthquakes and pollution of water and all these other things are there concerns about causing other ecological issues by doing that um i haven't heard much concerns in you know and i haven't heard of any earthquakes yet <laughs> Well, yeah, um, early days. <laughs> yes. Um, I think, I don't think they drill as deep. Uh, they don't use um, chemicals that cause fracturing within the rock. They're generally injecting into rocks that are very porous mm. and volcanic, at least in the Iceland case. And so it's a much gentler, slower process where you're, where, yeah, where the object isn't to crack and frack and, you know, create fractures within within the ground um i think fracking also it goes down and then it goes and then it goes you know horizontally under a really long you know a very it affects a wide area where currently the way that people are drilling and injecting you, you just drill a you know one vertical shaft and then you just pump high pressure water and you just let it um filter through this uh porous rock so yeah, fortunately, it's a bit of a different thing, and at least, and at the very least, there's no chemicals other than CO two and water going down. So you're not, you know, fracking is also right. It's like um, associated with like damaging some water supplies. So yeah. you don't have to run into that risk either. It also sounds like if they, if there was those risks, if you know, ten years from now we realize, hey, there's a lot of earthquakes coming around this region, you know, for whatever you know where these plants are. It doesn't sound like you actually need the ground. Like you probably make some type of like, uh, like container thing, like uh, like for, like for fermentation to do something similar. Um, I feel like you can make a synthetic version of what they're accomplishing in the ground above ground 
so they wouldn't cause it if that problem was happening. Versus fracking, you kind of have to do that to get the oil. I feel like you don't need that. It sounds like you wouldn't need it. Even if it was, you could potentially work your way around it, is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, kind of what you're saying describes a little bit about the opportunity with the mining and mining industries so um you know once you've once you've dug into a quarry and you've got the metal ore that you're interested in you also have a lot of other rock that you don't you know there's very limited or zero or negative economic value to partly because well yeah no one wants to buy it and the reason why it may be negative economic value is because it may contain heavy metals that pose an environmental risk and so you have to you have to ensure that it you know these metals don't leach out into the water supply um so this is an interesting area where dac can carbonate these mine tailings and kind of cement them up they have to and and they're effectively just landfilled or you know um or like well, they are. They are. They're, you know, right next to the where the mine is. You know, you have these huge stacks of rubble, and you can you can make them safer and store carbon in them. And it, yeah, it represents a huge opportunity to um, improve the sustainability of mining. Mm. And then, as you say, you don't have to worry about um, uh, actually drilling into the Earth's crust. Yeah. Because it's already been drilled. Well, not drilled, been dug. So it's already there. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, a sun, it's a sun cost. Yeah. But the damage is already being done. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's nice. But uh, you can, you know, use something bad for something good. But, so for a 10,000 ton plant per year, the mm. how much does it cost to build something like that? And then what would be the operating costs like per year? Yeah. So 10,000 tons per year, if we were to just simply scale up from our small plants um we're kind of talking about something i think in the range you know we haven't done it yet so you mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's very dangerous to talk about costs about things you haven't yet done but um i'll start from where we are right now so we're talking about you know like two to three million for um our plants that are on the scale of um like one ton per day um maybe a bit more with some tweaks um and then so that's you know maybe 20x or something like that so um so what are we talking about there something like maybe um i i think with the economies of scale you're probably looking at something like 15 mil for like a 10,000 ton plant um but it's hard to say like where the economy scale in uh, economies of scale comes in but that's what I'd roughly expect. Yeah. You're going to know more after the pilot plant. This is kind of like asking you a very like thought hypothesis question. Anyone listening in that's like 50 million, that's a lot. I don't know. I'm not going to invest in this company. Mm-hmm. Like they're going to learn more at the pilot program after the pilot yeah. plant. So let's, you know, ease up a little bit. It'll probably be less. Yeah, yeah. That's how that works. You're a scientist. So I imagine you average up. Yeah. Well, you know, part of the ch- challenge with like a pilot, right, is that you are on an ambitious timeline because you want to grow as a company, you want to get investment. And so, again, there's trade-offs, you know, how many com- how many different suppliers do you go for to, you know, get the lowest cost? And, you know, um, uh, do, you, do you try and get it manufactured in China or do you just get someone, you know, get it from a, a company in the Netherlands where you might be, you know, 
the level of trust might be a bit higher or you know the risk tolerance is a bit different so um all that value engineering comes when you can say we're trying to build a plant in three years time and we have the time to figure out where all the best places are to buy the stuff when you say we're trying to get this plant from like detail design to operation in 12 to 18 months then you know you don't have as much luxury for cost reduction unfortunately um yeah so then 15 15 million to build a 10,000 ton plant of 30 tons per day being <laughs> filtered uh what do you make off off of that what was like the expectation like well, how much people are going to pay you well there's different models <clears throat> yeah. um you know and, and maybe this is yeah I, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna quote any specific numbers here this is like um yeah just give a range i'm just kinda, i'm curious about not, the profitability as a business well so 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 the way that we look at it is because there's lots of different models here and mm -hmm. one way we're looking at the model right now is we sell the capex so we make some money on some money on the capex not not a huge amount but then we enter into um a maintenance agreement so um so that over the lifetime of the uh plant you know we make sure that it's running well we provide really good data on on how the different components are performing um and so and and perhaps we'll have some kind of royalty on every ton that is captured uh, you know that's a that's a hypothetical thing that we're we're testing out with um with potential customers um it's kind of akin to maybe the Rolls-Royce model. They make jet engines and they earn a little fee on every mile that that engine is flown. So, hmm. um, so that's, you know, you don't want to lump someone with too much CapEx. So you want to kind of lower the amount of upfront payment for, for a customer and then have some, you know, long-term revenue stream that allows you to um, maintain your you know your your viability of your business um, especially especially in the days where your technology is relatively new um, and people don't really know how well it will perform over 10 or 20 years that most people you know mo mo a lot of the time when we well pretty much all the time when someone quotes oh our technology uh, you know, produces CO2 at a cost of $300 per ton. They're levelizing that CapEx and OpEx over 20 years to get to that number. So when we're building plants and we're talking about this number, we're kind of imagining that we can keep it running for 20 years and it has it has a purpose for 20 years. That's obviously a big assumption given the rate of change of technologies. Um but that's kind of how the chemical industry works you know if if yeah. if you're building a plant that makes fuels chemicals methanol or something you know you have a lot of plants that are running on lower tech because they have to run for 20 years to to make sense from a profit from a profitability perspective it was i was working on a house and uh to upgrade upgrade the wiring was really annoying you had to, like blow out all the walls and stuff and i was uh and so i I'm always wondering, is it possible to make a modular system so I can like like pop the wall off and then like, you know, slot in like the upgraded equipment or whatever, like yeah. it's like a, with a PC case, right? There's there's a lower end of hard drive and all these different things you can get, but you can then upgrade to a certain point. Do you build 
the facility in a modular way so that you can slot in upgraded RAM, I guess, as the analogy, so it can grow and have a really long life as you continue to develop. And the nice side there is it's upsell as you develop more technology for the plant. Yeah, no, that's you've um, yeah, you just raised uh, something that we think we think about um, how to address the problem that we've just been talking about. Um, I'd love that to happen in my house. Um, yeah, so the components of the system are modular. So the stacks that I talked about are modular, so they can be replaced. Um, the membranes, if we find better membranes or develop better membranes, they can just be swapped out and you keep the same, you know, functional housing of the, of the stack. Um, all the chemistry is in a sense modular, right? If, if you say, oh, actually we've, we've developed a, a better capture solvent, then we'll just drain the system of the capture solvent and give you version 2.0. Um, so we do like to, you know, promote our technology on the basis of like, your technology can get better over time that, you know, the product that we give you can get better over time. You'll get vision updates. Um, even the contactor. So the contactor is the box that captures the CO2. It has these high surface area materials in there that allow your air and liquid to flow past each other. If you Google what a packing material is in the context of cooling towers, you'll, you'll see these like PC boxes of all these like interesting geometric channels. And there is a lot of optimization to be done there for direct air capture specifically. All the available ones have been designed for a different application for cooling, and it's not the same optimization function. They're not, you know, they're not a million miles off, but you know, they're gonna get better. So again, mm -hmm. you can take all these boxes of PVC out and then slot in new ones when 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 we develop them. Um, so yeah. Yeah, and that's a good that's a good thing you reminded me of, you know, that our our technology isn't this like fixed thing, you dump it on the ground, then 20 years later it's the same thing. Um, I'll be very disappointed <laughs> if, if that is what turns out to be the case. Mm. Yeah, I think I uh understand your business model and what you're building more now. I didn't know if it was I always wanted to like where does the stream stop in terms of like people like partnering and it becomes like a product that they sell to other people. And so the analogy I'd make is like is if Tesla built gigafactories. Like you're basically a gigafactory that makes batteries and then you like license. I, actually, that's a terrible analogy. I, I You're like <laughs> the software brain side of things and you're gonna manufacture these things, then license it to other people. So the operating costs of it running are given to other people to, to yes. take care of. And then uh, the software, all that other type of stuff is baked into it. And then your, your incentive is to uh, make it as efficient as possible, make it as, as best as possible so then they can improve their margins and they want to keep buying and scaling up as as needed. Um, and then, you know, having a, a modular system so you can have people who want to like dip their toe into it is also that's another aspect to it. Kind of like the Mac, like the Apple thing where it's like you can get like the basic thing, which is kind of okay, which is still very expensive or a slightly more expensive thing. And then by the end of it, it's like 5,000, you know, you know three, three or four times more expensive. So like there's also that added benefit in terms of like the pricing structure. So the... So I, now I understand more why you would potentially want to bring in manufacturing in-house as something you want mm -hmm. to control. And then um, because that's going to be a big component of the of deliverable, like getting it to someone yeah. in a way that is manufacturable, uh, scalable and controlled versus like partnering with someone to have them handle that side of it. There's there's it sounds like there's going to be a lot of iterations and a lot of uh, things going into it while you could partner with people to have them come in. The uh, If that's a big part of what you're building, I could see why. Put it all in house makes sense. 
Yeah, and and we're not going to get there, you know, um, next year. You know, this yeah. is you know, bringing everything house is a journey. Um, yeah, like we can come up with the plant design or the schematics, and we and you know the user guides, and we can say, okay, here, here's here's the design. Um, you go sell that to customers and build it for them. But then we don't have control over what is yeah. actually the best components, what's the best materials. And we don't want to be associated with someone um, who's not optimizing for the best customer experience. Um, I'm, 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 you know, I really love the u- utilization angle of CO2. Um, I, I care about the removals, but I really got into fast being fascinated about CO2 from the perspective of transforming it into things. And so, yeah, I, I love thinking about it from a kind of a product offering perspective. Um, yeah. You know, like CO2 is this molecule that we all hate, but at the same time, it's the molecule that all life uses, you know, mm-hmm. all plants use to grow and to make the food that we eat, to make the clothes that we wear. Um, it's a, It's just fascinating that biology has been able to leverage the ability of this molecule, but we are still demonizing it and haven't yet quite figured out how to efficiently use it in in the same way and so you know my vision has always been when we when we can transform co2 into into the molecule that replaces fossil fuels will have ended you know uh you know one of the biggest challenges that we've that we've been facing for the last you know last well, challenges that we've been facing in terms of, you know, the threat of global warming, you know, it's arguably we're still still doing quite well as a species, you know, where <laughs> GDP is increasing, populations are increasing, but we can't go on that way forever, right? So it's going to be a point. Have you uh, have you seen the population statistics, like the, the numbers when you add sugar to a Petri dish uh, with a, a bacteria in it? You ever just like look at that? It goes up, yeah. up, up, and up, and like I bet when they're at the top, they're like, "Wow, it's all—it's always going to keep getting better. Let's multiply like normal." And then they eat out all the sugar, and then it crashes, and they all die. And there's like a small population at the end of it. But right yes. before it crashes, everyone thinks it's really nice. Yeah, everyone's like, "Hey, this is great! Look at all the abundance." Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, and there, there's the odd case, right, where people have consumed all their resources. There's that island where Easter Island had. Easter Island had people consumed all their resources and then um, they didn't last too long. Um, these are kind of closed systems. And so mm-hmm. I, I I do believe in the whole system um, with, with our ability to innovate, our, our ability to return waste products back into feedstocks um, and our ability to work with the ecosystems, you know, the oceans, the forests, you know, the farmland, we're not going to run into that. I think, you know, when, when you have a, a large enough system, um, there's, there's so much abundance there that that at least I'm not worried that we're going to face a similar destiny as um, a mole in a Petri dish. But Yeah, well, I hope not. <laughs> we're pretty adaptable of a species. So Exactly. You yeah. know, it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing how adaptable we are, how diverse we are. Yeah. Um, well, it's a good time to be alive. Either we pull together and we do a great job and the world is yeah. better, or we go and become mole people. 
You know, that's a nice, exciting future. <laughs> that's, that's exciting. <laughs> where's where's uh, your money? Where's my money? In yeah. more people's time? What do you mean? Oh, no, I, <laughs> I mean, what's your bet? I mean, I, you know, are, are you relatively optimistic? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm optimistic. Either, either we'll solve it or our AI overlords will kind of make us like farm animals in the sense of like we'll be like manicured gardens and they'll take care of it for us. And they'll slowly wean us down on our population and we'll just leave lead just comfortable, comfortable lives that the AI optimized for happiness for. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like yeah. I think that's like I don't think AI will kill us because I think we I don't I, I don't think AI will kill us because I don't think it's optimized for that. It's like a like a paperclip maker, like in terms of like making more paperclips. And so uh, I think if we don't solve it, I think I, I could see like a rogue AI being like maximize human happiness, maximize human happiness. It's like, well, at a certain population density, we're all really unhappy. <laughs> so it's like, well, you know, uh, we're gonna release a chemical into the air and make uh, uh, fertility <laughs> decrease or whatever. You know, it's like not, not kill everyone, just slowly wean them off because because killing people makes people unhappy too. So you don't you don't kill them. Oh yes, yeah. Yes, but, then, but also maybe you know telling people how many children they can have might be. Um, oh, you don't tell them that. Oh, oh, you don't oh. tell them that. They can adopt. Oh, right, right. <laughs> they can okay, adopt. Okay, okay. Like, oh, I don't know. We just can't have children. Well, I mean, that, I mean, that, that is not That's so already nice, happening but... with plastic pollution and stuff. Like, there's a, a significant decrease in for, uh, fertility. For all we know, the AI is already taking over and slowly, we're already doing a lot of AI's work. It just needs to come with the last mile, last deliver, deliverable. But in terms of optimism, yeah, I think we're fine. We're not going to die out anytime soon. Maybe like, you know, couple hundred thousand years we'll probably change it as a species but then it's yeah, like when this yeah there's something we can't control anymore You're like the sun dying or um i don't know a mega asteroid well actually no i can't hope that we can save ourselves from asteroids um they just go on the ground mm. mole people the, 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 yes you don't do that that's a joke <laughs> that just make more uh, uh uh pebbly things more meteors yeah the, the, the AI piece is interesting, actually, from the perspective of, like, currently, algorithms, I don't know if you call al algorithms AI, but they're optimizing for our engagement and they're optimizing for, um, like, returning, like, advertising revenues. So it's like, how could you align um, the financial interests of al al algorithms, not for our engagement, but for actual well-being? You know, how, how can you take the advantage of capitalism for actual well-being rather than stimulation you know that uh, if someone solves that that'd be great i think elon must said if you add like a carbon tax it'll be solved in like a couple of years yes that's true again it's coming back to the point of you know appropriate regulation if you yeah. you know none of these technologies are good or bad um they're agnostic in that sense if you apply the appropriate regulation if you price in the price of carbon to your products, then it would um, instantly make our um, business models viable without having to do very much. And it's, and, and actually, when you think about it for certain consumer products, it's really marginal adding in that cost. So let's say like taking a carton of milk or something like that. So a carton of milk is like, I don't know, a dollar, two dollars, I don't know, something like that. A carton? Um, is it like one liter? How much milk is it? Let's say a liter. Let's say a liter of milk. It, it can range from 97 cents to four dollars on average. Okay. 
So we could start with the premium milks. You know, that's where people have the most willingness for price changes. Um, I think we're talking about a couple of kilos for every kilo of, of milk. And so, you know, at the price of like $500 a ton, you maybe you add 50 cents, um, something like that on, onto a carton of milk. You know, like I think there's a, there's already a relative amount of people that would start adding, to, you know, between 10 to 50 cents onto a product to make it carbon neutral. Um, I don't know why that's not being done yet more, but. Well, it's a kind of a um, big increase though. It's milk. Milk, a 50, milk. 50 cents, a 50 cents increase on milk might make it the price where people can't afford it. People are already struggling to afford food as it is. Yes. So I'd start with the, the, the premium kind of milk, <laughs> you know, for the, uh, for the rich people. Like, kind of, yeah. Price yeah. the rich. Maybe, maybe, you know, put a carbon tax on, you know, luxury foods and goods, you know, so, cause, cause they're going to be like, I don't care. You know, this is just, you know, rounding errors. So that's fair. I, I could see if it's like a really expensive thing, like a hundred bucks, you had 50 cents, who cares? Like a small increase. But I feel, I, I feel for the people who are scrimping to get $97 milk, uh, because if you don't give if you don't give kid, kids enough milk when they grow up, they get bowed legs. It's actually a big deal, right. and this it happens a lot in the past, which is why in America we have subsidized lunches where kids can get milk. Because if they didn't get milk, they would literally their the calcium that they need for the bone structure wouldn't be there, and they would literally start having bowed limbs. And so whenever we have to go and fight the world's wars, especially you British people can't solve them on your own, we need yeah. our soldiers to not have bowed limbs. So that's <laughs> like that's feeding feeding the populace well is just the military ensuring that they have a crop of soldiers to fight the next war. But that's all it is. Like in World War One, World War Two, when people were showing up and they were like so malnourished, they started introducing uh, school uh, lunches to feed kids. So like, oh, we probably should see this, see this off at the pass. So um I don't know where I'm going with that that point anymore, but uh, <laughs> that's something we did. So, like, if milk is more expensive, there you go. Sure. If milk is more expensive, it's it's not good. Like, milk milk is already like yeah. on that point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Food food prices are a bit yeah not yeah. doing too well. Yeah, yeah. But I see your point for expensive stuff. Like, you know, luxury yachts. You know, they can they can add a couple million more onto it and do some work with it. I could see that. Um, so you're for the carbon tax if it's done in the right way. You don't see like a progressive carbon tax or a uniform carbon tax. You just see something for like the upper like 10% of costs. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Like a, a uniform carbon tax would really mess up a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, something more uh, sophisticated and, you know, only affecting people that can afford it. That'd be great. I mean, people, people price um, uh, price the... Total cost of um, going to net zero to something like, you know, I'm at least in the right order of magnitude here, three trillion dollars or something like that, which I think is kind of like the um, total GDP of Sweden or something like that. It's like five percent of, of 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 world. Um, Sweden has a trillion dollar GDP. Uh, I, I, well, I figured Sweden would be really small. I thought it would be like 500 billion or something. And I think Ukraine is like like 100 million. But the people mm. talk about this all the time. So I, well, I know like let's, Italy let's has take, the same GDP let, as Russia. Let's take people the talk Sweden about that a lot because I'm referring to <laughs> like an old back of that envelope calculation. So who knows about the credibility of that? But yeah. I think it is on the trillions of dollar range that people, all the countries would need to spend as a as an aggregate 
every year to make you know that's the doable go away, which does feel doable you know yeah china yeah, america like, could do it by themselves they take halfsies yeah yeah so yeah so we're not we might get there yeah i think <laughs> well china and america is like 20 trillion gdp a piece right like america's like 21 and like china's like 17. so if like we split it in like half a billion i mean half a trillion each there you go we can do that maybe that we, seems bad yeah we could stop it if we didn't have militaries we could probably like do it tomorrow but we we need our militaries to you know police the world and whatnot it's a good thing or maybe not i don't know yeah because that, right that world is right out of control without america and china about oh uh, i mean technically it would but uh, the, Amer- the american system uh, of geo the american system of globalization is much better than the the britain uh system of globalization britain didn't allow globalization to happen you guys stifled uh innovation hey that's the sins of our past. <laughs> hey, well, when you were when you were the world you know, police, you only you only policed your world. We we allow anyone to trade on our seas as long as they give us favorable deals. That's, that's a good deal. That is an nation would have happened. Yes, that is a that's an improvement of the previous yeah. model. Yeah, um, England's mm-hmm. model was all roads lead to lead to England, where America's model is trade as you will and pay us accordingly, and then we will intervene if you mess with that. That seems like the model. Yes. That is the model. Um, I get a lot of people watching this in China, so I'm, this will be really interesting <laughs> to see the conversation. <laughs> there's like, there's like a good like 12 percent of the people in China just like they really like it because they're into innovation, and uh, I don't know how they listen to it, but they must know English over there. But um, they do. They're gonna there's... they're gonna weigh in on this. I like to get some Chinese experts in on this. For people in China, how, would you be for this? But um, oh, in a serious and, and... note. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, <laughs> China, China's models. You know, maybe we could say China has has a new model. You know, that's advanced. You know, I don't know if it's advanced. If we can say it's advancing over the U.S. model, but they tend tend to. You know, okay. Again, I don't know what your Chinese viewers are going to say, but tend to come into countries, build loads of infrastructure, set up economic deals, um, and I don't know if that's you know a net good or whatever, but that's you know they seem to be less intervening in the politics more intervening in hey here's some you know hospitals and schools and roads can we please mine your cobalt um <laughs> please <kind of> model. <laughs> they don't say please but well i think of i think of their model as like a hybridization of china i mean america and the uh uk because they they go in and they do all those nice things like when america's using soft power it usually works pretty well when people see like american troops going places in a negative way they don't like it but when they see it, us like helping with the humanitarian crises and you know building things like people like us more this is a surprise but so china goes in and yeah they build these things but they don't build them for free like the belt and road initiative they they own that land like a lot of the places like if they default uh, on it or whatever they just like they seize it it's like a it's a very like more of of like england to america it's like a little bit of both where like america comes in with soft power but it does have that english all roads lead to china route but at the same time like it's not i don't want to say like america's like this paragon of virtue i'm just saying like it's it's a little bit it's a little bit more like selfish english versus like american we keep all the trade routes open which is kind of nice okay if we went away you guys would be very sad there would be so many pirates you would not be able to, like you wouldn't be able to build your thing for instance if america went away well you know if, if that's true then yeah i'm, I'm 
<laughs> all for it. Yes, American imperialism. I don't think it's imperialism anymore. But so, uh, what books would you recommend? <laughs> it's just like, it literally, you'll have there'll be like one person who's going to be a Chinese investor, like, oh, I really like this company. Listens in. <laughs> We're just like carping China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative. It's like, well, he's not giving him my millions now. But uh, that's not, we're just, we're just joking, you know, please invest in this stuff. But um, what are some books you recommend people check out? I'm always looking for new things to read. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, I, I tend to not read that much about specifically what I do, actually. I tend I tend to have quite different reading habits. That makes sense. Um, I really liked uh, The Case Against Reality. Um, mm. It's a book about the way our perceptions have evolved to not see reality is, but to see reality in a way that makes us more evolutionarily fit. And yeah. being evolutionarily fit doesn't map necessarily, necessarily to truth or objective reality. And so yeah. it was a kind of a bit of a, like a, you know, wow, I'm seeing everything different kind of book. Um, yeah, your brain's really lazy. It's it's for it's uh it's choosing based on past behavior what it's remembering and feeding to you. Yes, yeah, and 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 I like it because it's a little bit heretic, right? You know, like yeah. a lot of people believe that we see reality as it is, and we see, you know that's what we're optimized and tuned for. You know, that's what a lot of scientists believe, but they don't realize how much subjectivity and kind of approximations that are going on. So as a scientist, I was like, yeah, this is cool. Uh, yeah um you might like oliver sacks then oliver sacks yeah he's a neuroscientist i think he's a neurosurgeon or a neuroscientist or a neurologist one of the one of the neuros a very big expert in the field and he taught he, he wrote books on case studies of brain or abnormalities that he experienced in life like uh, um people who started seeing in gray people who um had some like corpus callosum type mess up so then they couldn't mm. see half the, the 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 world out of one eye but they could like write and stuff and whatnot it's really interesting wow. books yeah i, yeah, I recommend really that cool. but i think i think you were going on for a second suggestion but i just suggest that real quick to you oh second suggestion i mean the second suggestion that comes to mind is on the same topic but from a buddhist mm -hmm. perspective and it's called seeing that frees rob babaya and so for anyone who's interested in like meditation or um that type of stuff then that takes a kind of a meditative lens to uh that case against reality kind of thing um it kind of is like there's no perfect way of looking at anything but the way you should look at it is the way that reduces suffering the most mm -hmm. um and net suffering not just your own suffering right isn't it the suffering yeah. of you and others around you so i think those two books which chime quite well together um yeah, that's that's what's been going on from a non-fiction perspective. I'm currently listening to Dune, and I'm loving it. Um, it's such a such a crazy bit of. Is it the first time? Movie. Have you yes. have you read them all? Okay, so this uh, is the first. Yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting. It's, it's interesting. Do, what do you think of Paul Atreides? Oh, well, no, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I've not got all the way to the end, so I don't know if that's going to shift how I view him. Yeah, but... where is he right now in your head? Yeah. Well, currently he's like, you know, getting in with uh, the Fremens, you know, mm -hmm. kind of figuring out what that kind of culture and, and, and he's only, you know, he's starting to, he's in the process of morphing into someone new, right? I don't yeah. know who he's morphing into yet. So currently I'm intrigued and finding kind of cool and, um, 
but I'm not sure where his new powers will take him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I look forward right in when you uh, get, get to the end of his storyline, mm-hmm. which doesn't resolve in this book. It resolves like, I technically it doesn't ever resolve, but um, his kids are weird, but uh, uh, yeah, let us know what you think. And then uh, what is the best way to stay up to date with what you're working on? Is okay, it just like sure. the website? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we have a website. It's not very well updated. It's not, you know, not all the latest information. Um, but it's a good place to start. <laughs> There's like, everyone listening is like, well, I'm not going to go to that. <laughs> no, no, like, it's got a bunch of news articles that tells you what we've yeah. been up to. We're actually soon to get a marketing and branding lead who will, like, you know, take charge of, you know, our comms and, and improve on that a lot. So go to our website. Uh, we sometimes post on LinkedIn and Twitter um that's that's the that's the best i can say for now have you ever read uh hp lovecraft hp lovecraft no what no tell me more it's like cosmic horror this idea that there's like these old gods that if you were to like really know them you'd be driven insane oh oh well anyways so so what's the connection (laughs) so the uh so so in the antarctic the antarctica there are penguins that'll just like walk off into the middle of the Antarctica and they won't, they don't know where they go. They just wander off. And so I've, I've long felt that they go to appease the old gods to make uh, sure the world doesn't cataclysm. Like they're all like sleeping underneath oh, the ice. Cool. And so I was asking you, if you did oh, know, nice. what are the chances that underneath Antarctica, if all of it were to melt, are the old gods that the penguins are trying to keep sleepy? But uh, I'm going to guess like 0% because you don't, you don't know the reference. Oh, yeah. So, do the, so, so the penguins come back. No, no, they, they're like, but my, my hypothesis in this is that the penguins are wandering <laughs> off into the, yeah. to the Arctic, to the Arctic and sacrificing themselves to the old guys to keep them sleeping. They're yeah. not coming back. Okay. They, they, okay. The, the, the fiction from reality, the, the reality is penguins do wander off <laughs> just for people listening in for <laughs> penguins do wander off into the Arctic and they're never seen again. The fiction I'm saying is one of those old gods are feeding themselves too. And then if so, if we melt the poles, will they waken up and kill us all? So it's like, it is a Mm -hmm. esoteric reference. And I was just going to ask you probabilistically, how how likely do you think that's to be true? (laughs) But it doesn't sound likely. Um, Yes, (laughs) I I, I don't know. But why don't we put a a camera on them and find out what, what they get up to? They've tried. You can't. Uh, I don't know. I've had a penguin expert on. I've literally asked this question, and she said she does not know. We don't. We don't follow them. No like, one we can't knows. follow them. They we just keep going. Them. They're just. They just keep too going. Sneaky. It just this. Well, this is. I think one of my favorite mysteries um, that I've come across <laughs> recently. <laughs> well, I'm glad I asked the question because I guarantee I'm going to get a comment section where someone's going to be like, "Why did you ask that stupid question?" <laughs> <laughs> it's like i don't know i just thought of it we're talking about climate change like that'd be a pretty big uh climate effect if there's like old gods living underneath the arctic being yeah. fed by penguins yeah well I'm, yeah well and maybe you know because climate change is getting worse maybe they're not you know sacrificing themselves in great great enough numbers or something like that or maybe it's a metaphor for capitalism and how we're destroying our own world. And there's like a few people like you that are sacri- sacrificing themselves to the, to what could be a terrible future, but it, it's only a trickle and it's not enough to change it. And so they're going to wake up one day and it's going to cause a cataclysm. It's a metaphor. Yeah. 